Greetings, friends and brethren. This is uh, Dr. Bob Teal for Continuing Church of God. And to, we're going to go over questions that people submitted to the old Worldwide Church of God. And I'm going to go over some various answers to a lot of topics. I'm planning on covering several such as uh, eating blood, God's chosen people, begotten versus being born again. I'll probably cover things like uh, Star of David, co-regencies, leaven, fruit trees, various statements from Jesus. Uh, something about loss, uh, the hating relatives, uh, swords, and we'll see how many we get through. I've mentioned before that when I was leaving the uh, Worldwide Church Guide, when they started to change, they gave me a binder that had various subjects that said you could preach from. Now, some of the things that are in this particular binder, the well, the Worldwide Church Guide, when it changed, uh, don't, won't, doesn't teach this stuff anymore. And even in this binder, though, there were some things that they changed that I won't be using their answers for uh, because they're inaccurate from a biblical perspective. So I'm going to go through these. The first one I'm starting off with is a question regarding uh, eating blood. And it's not the type of question you might think. The one is, are we supposed to eat blood? The answer is no. We know that from the book of Leviticus. But let me go through what this question was. Is eating rare meat in violation of God's prohibition against eating blood. Now, the command about eating blood is in the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 17, uh, verses 10 through 11. I'm not going to read that. You can look that up, and most of you are probably already familiar with it. But that's not talking about the juices that remain in meat. It's talking about when you kill an animal and the blood comes out. Uh, I have been involved in the slaughter of uh, uh, chickens, ducks, turkeys, cows, uh, sheep, goats, and when you slaughter them, much blood comes out. And so that's the type of blood that the Bible's talking about not uh, consuming. It's not talking about any uh, thing that might be in the juices or something. So uh, while depending on the safety of the animal, it may or not be wise to eat uh, raw or, or, or very rare uh, meat, it's not biblically prohibited because of uh, blood. So that's uh, one thing. Now the next one has to do with the ultimate fate of Satan, the devil. In the book of 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 6, verse 16, it says only Jesus has uh, immortality. And I'd like to read Hebrews chapter uh, 2, verse 14. So give me a moment, I will get over there. Uh, this will be from the uh, New King James Version of the Bible. Inasmuch then, Hebrews 2.14, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And we're uh, intending to put up uh, a, a video regarding that. Uh, uh, Richard Close is planning on doing that with more details. So that's as much of that I want to cover here. Now the next one is has to do with the casting of lots. So I'd like to read about that because people have wondered about this. So let me read uh, what uh, the position of the church was. And our church has got the same position. God gave ancient Israel the system of casting lots as a means of determining his will in doubtful matters. 
And you can see that in Numbers uh, 2354, 1 Samuel 1442, and 1 Chronicles 24, verse 5. God would guide the outcome to determine, show his will. This method was still in use at the time of Christ. The disciples used casting lots in determining who God was selecting to fulfill the office vacated by Judas. And uh, you could read that in Acts uh, 1, uh, verses uh, 15 to 26. But after the events in Pentecost, uh, uh, 31 AD, we think, 30 or 31 AD, we don't see any more mention of casting of lots. And the position that's written here, and we agree, continuing Church of God, the apostles depended upon direct guidance by the Holy Spirit, uh, which was used to uh, guide people into all truth, as you can see in uh, Acts 2 or uh, John 16:13, And they also said, if you want to other scriptures, look at Acts 6, 1 through 8, uh, Acts 13, 1 through 3, Acts 15, 19, and 28, and Acts 16, 6. And I'm not going to read all of those here. But that's, uh, again, we don't, we no longer uh, utilize the casting of lots, and we don't see it used in the New Testament since, or after the time of Jesus was replaced. Now this next one is a bit unusual. And actually one of the reasons that from time to time we cover these old questions is these are sub, sometimes these are topics that uh, would never occur to me to cover. And we're always trying to give you a variety of information on biblical topics and teach the truth on, on various things. So this is one that naturally I would not have picked. So here's the question. Was Jephthah uh, one who sacrificed his daughter? Now, let me read what the old Worldwide Church of God wrote. The earliest Christian Jewish commentators accepted the account of Judges 11 at face value. So let's go to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 11, and uh, we'll read this. Okay, Judges uh, chapter 11. And uh, there was a problem. And people came to Jephthah. They wanted him to try to resolve it. They wanted him to lead basically the army. And verse 29 says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. And he passed through Mizpah and Gilead, from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon, or Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall be truly the Lord's, and I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. Offer it up. Okay? So anyway, it says in verse 32, he advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered him his hands, and he defeated them. So verse 34, so where it gets interesting. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. She was his only child. So she came and said, celebration, oh, my dad's here, it's alive, this is great, this is a great thing. 
standing beside her. He had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes, which was a common thing that they would do uh, back then to show their remorse or uh, disgust. And clothes, by the way, were extremely expensive then. People didn't usually own more than a couple of sets of clothes. Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low. She didn't do anything to bring him low. She just was treating her dad. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord. I can't go back on it. So she said to him, if, Father, if you've given your word to the Lord, do according to me according to what came out of your mouth, because the Lord avenged you of your enemies. And going back to what uh, this uh, Worldwide Church of God thing says, says, Judges indicates that Jephthah did indeed keep his vow and sacrifice his daughter. But would God require him to do that? Is God pleased with that? Absolutely not. The Bible reveals human sacrifice is abhorrent to God. And they quote, for example, uh, Jeremiah 7.31. And let me just read this. It'll be from the Old King James. Jeremiah 7.31. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, to build their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not. Neither came it into my heart. You know, human sacrifice is truly uh, contrary to God's will. Of course, when Jephthah did that, he wasn't thinking about his uh, daughter when he made it. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I want to read verse 2. The Bible warns in the book of Ecclesiastes, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God's in heaven, you're on the earth, therefore let your words be few. So he should have been careful. As Christians, we're admonished. Do not be rash with your mouth, let not your heart say utters anything hastily before God. So this applies to us as well. And let's go down to verse 5 of Ecclesiastes 5. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And you say, okay, well that's, uh, that's then it was okay for him to go out and uh, kill her. No, he, it was not an appropriate vow to make. Let's go to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6. There's a principle I want to go over here. Proverbs 6, starting at verse 1. My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you've shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend. Go humble yourself and plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter like a bird from the hand of the fowler. What this is saying is if you've said something stupid or inappropriate, you better beg forgiveness and try to deal with this quickly. That's what Jephthah should have done. Now I want to go to uh, 1 John 1 verse 9. I go here fairly frequently. 
This is the other thing Jephthah should have done. First John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what Jephthah should have done. I had you go to Proverbs to show that the Bible says, even if you make something to a human being, say something to a human being that's totally wrong, you better quickly try to resolve it. And get out of it. Ask for forgiveness. See if they'll let you out of whatever you said. But certainly, since that's in God's word, as well as what's in First John 1, verse 9, to confess our sins and that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that's what Jephthah should have done, but uh, uh, he did not. But for the rest of us, again, we need to be careful what we say because it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay and be careful about our words. Okay, next one is about God's chosen people. Here's the question. Whether or not Jews, are, are the Jews God's chosen people? Well, the Bible is, makes it clear that God chose Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, to be his nation. But the Jews are part of it. So it's not the Jews aren't the only chosen people who were chosen. God made a covenant uh, with the children of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. And they were supposed to be an example. And you can see uh, Acts 10, verse 34, God does not have favorites. Now, Israel failed in being the example they were supposed to be. They were supposed to live according to God's ways, God's laws. What the Bible says is people would find out that they were doing, that they were doing well. That's how would they do it. They would explain God's commandments and statutes and judgments, etc., that they were doing. But instead, they kept failing. They, would, they didn't do them, so they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And they ended up being taken into uh, uh, captivity by the Assyrians in uh, 720, and then also by the Babylonians in uh, 587, and there were uh, mass deportations, etc., back then. Then, about 70 years later than that, Judah began to return uh, to rebuild uh, Jerusalem, uh, etc. So, and most of the most of the Jews, many of the Jews were also accompanied by some other tribes. For example, uh, uh, Saul called himself a Jew, but he was a Benjaminite. And one of the reasons they did this is, um, I want to go into lots and lots of uh, old church history on this part, but after the death of Solomon, uh, the tribes of Israel split. And essentially, Judah and Benjamin, and eventually those from uh, Levi, went with the uh, kingdom of Judah. And then the uh, other uh, uh, ten tribes uh, including Ephraim and Manasseh, went with uh, uh, what became the kingdom of uh, Israel. And so, but both the, the, those of Judea and those of uh, Israel were Israelites, and they were, they were all uh, God's chosen people. Now, God has not given up on uh, Israel. There's prophecies in Hosea and Ezekiel uh, 36 and Zechariah uh, 12 to 14 that the show the people of Judah and Israel will repent and that in the kingdom of God they will be there. Now one other thing I'm going to comment on, and we have a sermon on this, is that 
Uh, some people have wondered what the uh, Jews looked like and what color Jesus was and things like that. Uh, we're going to hold up a couple of things. This first one is a mosaic, uh, Jewish mosaic from the 5th century, and this is supposed to be a Jewish King David. As you can see, he's got reddish hair and he is white, uh, Caucasian. And here's another one. This is King Jehu bowing down before Shalemezer. This is ancient. This is uh, has to do with the captivity we were talking about before. Uh, again, Caucasian features. I mentioned this, but again, some feel that uh, Jesus and the Jews were black, and the people currently in the tiny nation of Israel, which is essentially Judah, uh, are not truly Jews, and we disagree with that. And this won't come out quite as well, but there's a couple of coins that were done regarding the uh, taking over of Jerusalem under uh, uh, General uh, uh, Titus, yeah, Ty, um, General Titus under Vespasian, and um, right here it actually says, make sure it gets there, it actually says it's talking about uh, Judah, Judea, and you can see the features of this person and see the features here, and they are a Caucasian, which is consistent with the bulk of the people in the land of uh, uh, Israel right now, the nation called Israel, and we have a sermon on this that you can watch in our sermon channel. Uh, with more details along those lines. And there's also an uh, article that you could read as well. Okay, the next one is kind of interesting because this is something that the old, excuse me, the changed Worldwide Church of God under the Tekach administration changed. And this is about being begotten by the Holy Spirit or being born again. And I've debated if I was going to do a full sermon on this topic. And I decided this was a good time to go into the topic as it was one of the topics in this particular book. And it won't take this entire sermon, but I'm going, to, I'm going to spend some time in it. For many years, the old Worldwide Church of God taught that we were begotten by, we were begotten children of God by God's Holy Spirit, and we would be born again after the, for, after the first resurrection. Now, around 30 years or so ago, this changed. Essentially, it basically became more Protestant, which basically was, once you accept Jesus as your Savior, you are then born again. And that, uh, that's basically what they were, they were teaching. Now, for a while, I just thought it was a semantics issue. Because I, you know, I believed that we would be changed at the resurrection. I never disagreed with that. But I started to think, well, the Protestants ask if you're born again. All they really want to know is if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. So I really considered this was more of a semantics issue, but not a major distortion of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. However, I was wrong. Actually, I was very wrong. Now, my wife Joyce, on the other hand, she didn't go along with this change about being born again. Again, now I still believe that upon conversion we were begotten of God and we're still his children. But I just, uh, uh, I just didn't think it made any difference when we're talking to Protestants about us being born again or not. But I also believe 1 John 3 9, which you can read, read, read if you'd like, which says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for a seed remains in him. He cannot sin, for he is born of God. Now, when I was in 1 John, uh, 
before, talking about confessing our sins, I didn't read the verses afterwards. It says, if you say we have no sin, we're a liar, and our truth is not in us. Okay, there's verses in that part of uh, John. So this is, this is a contradiction. Because if you've already been totally born again now, uh, and you, uh, you can't sin, and this says, uh, now there's other explanations of this, but I'm, I'm still the view that once you've truly been born of God, you won't sin. After the resurrection, you will not sin. I think that's what this is related to. Some people have other opinions, and I can understand that. Now, when the changed worldwide Church of God came up with its born-again position, I, again, I thought, man, just a semantics thing. So later, though, I went back and I reread uh, something about this in Hislip's book, Two Babylons. Now, many of you may be familiar with it. I should have brought my copy up here, but I have one. And I'd read this book probably 15 years before uh, Worldwide Church God made these changes. But there was a section on baptismal regeneration that I guess I didn't remember. It slipped my mind. According to Hislip, being born again on earth was a long-standing pagan belief. And he quotes Asiatic researchers that uh, Hindu Brahmins boast that they were twice-born men. And it also quoted uh, the Greco-Roman Catholic belief that infant baptism, quote, regenerates us by a new spiritual birth. In other words, infant baptism is how one becomes born again. And we don't baptize infants in the continuing Church of God. Why? Because, for example... In the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 38, uh, Jesus said, you have to repent, accept Jesus as your Savior, and infants, babies cannot do that. And I also found out that uh, Hislop was quoting Prescott's Quest of Mexico, Conquest of Mexico, and in it he said that the Roman Catholic missionaries, they were shocked by similarities of a pagan baptismal ceremony to their own. And in that pagan ceremony in Mexico, shortly after Columbus, etc., the Roman Catholic missionaries saw that they were this person was born anew. Now, Hislop seemed to feel that the concept of being born again with baptism originally was a pagan corruption of the fact that God saved Noah in an ark from the flood. And as many of you are aware, there's many ancient civilizations have stories about some kind of a flood. Now, of course, Noah lived before and after the flood. And uh, so apparently some of the pagans believed he was uh, somehow uh, born again. And that the water of the flood was supposed to be like a type of baptism. And anyway, the pagans taught after some baptismal type ceremony, which doesn't necessarily require immersion in various cultures, the reborn individual was assured of uh, entrance into some version of paradise. Now, interestingly, the Roman Catholic Church admitted that their practice of infant baptism are of non-scriptural origin. Hislop quotes a Catholic by the name of Judicus Tielentanus as saying, we are not satisfied with which the apostles or the gospel do declare. So in other words, what's in the Bible is not enough for us. But we say that, as well as before and after, there are different matters of importance and weight accepted to receive a doctrine which is nowhere set forth in writing. Okay? 
For we do bless the water wherewith we baptize, and the oil where we anoint. And besides that, he is christened. Out of what scripture have we learned the same? Have we not of it of a secret and unwritten ordinance? So, they're doing stuff that they say did not come from this book. And further, what scripture has taught us to grease with oil? Yes, I pray you, once comes, do we dip the child three times in that water? Doesn't it come out of a hidden and undisclosed doctrine, which our forefathers have received closely without any curiosity, and do observe it? So he's saying that it wasn't part of the original faith. But we've got a book, Beliefs of the Original Catholic Church. And people will be surprised that the original Catholic Church did not practice infant baptism and have a lot of other doctrines that the, the Church of Rome, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and, and the Protestants, for that matter, are picked up. In terms of the Protestants, by the way, we have actually a thicker book, Hope of Salvation, How the Continuing Church of God Differs from Protestantism. But my point is, Hislop's point was, they admitted they did not get it from this book. Now what's this got to do with being born again from a Protestant perspective? The Roman Catholics used to believe that babies and others who died before committing any sin would eternally be in this bizarre place called limbo. It's a bizarre realm and it was supposed to be sort of like a Hades type of a place if they hadn't been baptized. Now, when he was Pope Benedict XVI, now he's emeritus pope, his church put something out actually called uh, A Hope of Salvation, which I chuckle about because you say, well, you wrote this book after uh, Benedict's paper. That's true, but I wrote a long article with this title years before Benedict put that on his. Anyway, the uh, Roman Catholic Church now uh, doesn't seem to teach limbo, so they're still not sure what they teach about this. But the Roman Catholics do teach that you can be a terrible person, um, but if you were baptized as an infant and uh, you uh, go through their sacrament of confession before you die, that you go, go to heaven. You know, certain Greco-Roman Catholic teachings strongly emphasize the importance of ceremony, which they call sacraments, over living according to every word of God. Basically, from Roman Catholic perspective, once you're once baptized, your so-called immortal soul, which was not a belief, by the way, of original Catholics, they didn't believe in the immortal soul, you can access the kingdom of, of uh, heaven, the kingdom of God. And that's what they teach. Now, the Protestant view is actually remarkably similar, except baptism isn't required of infants in most Protestant denominations. Uh, and the, and the uh, Protestants have all kinds of views about what happens to infants. Some of that's in here. Uh, we go into more scriptural explanations of what happens to babies who die, as well as others who don't know the truth of God before they die. Oh, I've been holding up a couple of different books. I should mention that any of the books that I hold up are available free at the www.ccog.org website. Go to the literature tabs under books and booklets and you'll find those. So this one and the one about the Belize Original Catholic Church and anything else we have uh, it's available, is there, and it's free. We don't ask you for any information. You just click on it, you can read it. And you can check out the scriptures. Check out the historical references. We're not making this stuff up. But we are calling out those who rely on tradition more than the Word of God.
Anyway, the general Protestant view seems to be that once you sin, and they don't always define it, even though 1 John 3, verse 4, Old King James says, sin is a transgression of the law. You must, anyway, the Protestant view is once you sin, you've got to accept Jesus as your Savior, and then you're born again. Baptism is uh, expected, but it doesn't seem to be an absolute requirement according to a lot of Protestants. But once you're born again, your so-called immortal soul is guaranteed to enter heaven upon death unless you fully repudiate your belief in Jesus. I received a little cartoon tract in the mail, uh, I guess it was last year, and these guys were, were out drinking and they were in a car accident and they all died, and I guess there were five or six of them. And according to this Protestant tract, uh, one went to heaven and the other five uh, went the other direction. And they are saying, wait, how come he gets to go to heaven? And then basically it was, well, one time when he was nine, uh, he saw, heard something at a church service or he heard it, saw something on TV and he said, yes, Jesus, I accept you as Savior. And they said, but the guys, the people who weren't going to go to heaven said to him, yeah, but he'd live just like us. He wasn't any different than us. Nope, that was it. He was born again. That was it. That's particular uh uh, cartoon track said. Now, but the reality is that that's simply not the case. Now, I will comment that eternal life is a gift of God, as it says in Romans six twenty three, and that salvation is by the grace of God and not by works, according to Ephesians two eight. But the Bible also warns in Jude verse four that there are ungodly men who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And I'd like to read something that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. I'll give you a moment to get there. Well, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? Paul. People who supposedly were born again as, as, as Protestants or whatever, uh, they, they do these things. Matter of fact, they, some of them tell you this stuff is actually expressing love for the sexual immorality. Uh, let's go to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 5. And they think they should live that way without repenting. Further, Ephesians 5, starting verse 5, Apostle Paul also writes, for know this, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you through empty words. And a lot of this born-again stuff is really based on empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. But again, I was telling you about that cartoon track and that one guy who was partakers with them all the time. He's been deceived and that track is deceiving people. Track is deceiving people. These are pretty strong, clear scriptures. You know, it says in 2 Timothy 3, starting verse 16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now let's look at some things that Jesus taught. Let's go to John chapter 3. I'm going to cut into verse 5 here. Jesus said, Most surely, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. Well, if you're born again now, we see these people. <laughs> okay? That kind of contradicts what Jesus just said. But you can be gotten by God's Holy Spirit now. Okay? And that's different. But Jesus said what was born is different than, than that. And uh, I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting verse 49. Go with something else the Apostle Paul wrote. First Corinthians 15, starting at verse 49. And as we born the image of the man of dust, which is what we are doing now, including Paul, who was converted, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's fantastic news. In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Notice, be raised incorruptible. They won't be able to sin. We shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. And we're not born again then, till we are changed at the resurrection. One is born of water with physical birth, because uh, that's normally accompanied by the water-breaking force from the mother. One is begotten the Holy Spirit now, but we will be born of the Spirit at the first resurrection. Now, I'm going to go through one of the challenges here. Some people bring up 1 Timothy, excuse me, not 1 Timothy, and I'd like you to go to where I'm going to say, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.23. Some have wondered about this, and it uses this proof that Christians are born again. And I'll read this in the New King James. First Timothy, First Peter, one twenty three. First Peter one twenty three, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives, abides forever. But that doesn't really convey the reality. It should be translated as begotten. Now, there's. A, I'm going to go through three translations to get this right, and there are probably others. But I'm going to limit it to three. 1 Peter 1.23 from the ASV, American Standard Version. Having been begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which liveth and abideth. Now, 1 Peter 1.23 from the a faithful version. For you have been begotten again, not from corruptible seed, but from incorruptible seed, by the living word of God, which remains forever. And then, I'm going to read from Young's literal translation. 1 Peter 1.23 Being begotten again, not of seed corruptible, but incorruptible through word of God, living and remaining to the age. In this age, Christians are begotten by the Holy Spirit, but we will be born again at the resurrection. Now, somebody disagreed with me about this. And so I'm going to read through some of uh, the criticism that I've gotten. And this is what this person said in an email. I don't find a differentiation between begotten and born crucial. It seems to be a means of obscuring and explaining away things. Be that as I may have one last question. Paul writes to the Colossians, Colossians 1, 3, 
King James Version. Excuse me, 113, Colossians 113, King James Version. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into his kingdom of his dear Son. So, hence, if some has been translated in the kingdom of Christ, then they are outside the kingdom of God. Thus, Colossians and Paul have been with the dominion of darkness, and after they've been translated there, are we still in the dominion of darkness? You seemingly don't appreciate such terms as being seated in heaven, Ephesians 3.10, or being a new creature, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. All this willing or unwilling ignorance is understandable, but I understand is how you can seriously claim that no one actually entered God's kingdom when Paul tells us the Colossians that they have done that. Uh, so let me go through uh, a couple of things along this side. First of all, being born versus begotten is actually uh, crucial or critical. That is actually quite important. As far as being a new creature goes in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, when we have a newly begotten child, let's say uh, a woman gets pregnant, that is a new creature. Uh, the child has been begotten but is not born. So it's be considered being enrolled as a member of the family. Now as far as Ephesians 3.10 goes, what it actually says is, you can go there if you want, I'll read it from the New King James. Ephesians 3.10 To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God may be made known by the church, the principalities and powers in heavenly places. That does not contradict the idea about being begotten now. Furthermore, Colossians 1.13 doesn't say anything about being begotten, be, be, being born again now. It discusses the kingdom, and yes, Christians are named to be in that kingdom. But we're not there now. You know, the book of life will be open, and whose names are listed will be in there. The kingdom is future. Uh, let's go to the book of Mark. I'll read a couple of things in the book of Mark on this. Mark uh, 9.47 Jesus says, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast. So that's one part of it. Now if you're in Mark 9, let's go to Mark 10. Start in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were astonished at his words, and Jesus answered and said, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, in Mark 14.25, I guess I'll read this. Mark 14.25, we read, Jesus says, Surely I say to you, I'll no longer drink the fruit of the vine till that day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. But I want to go to Mark 15.43. This is after Jesus was uh, killed. Joseph Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God coming, took courage. So he wasn't in it yet. And let's go to uh, Matthew 25, starting verse 31. There's other scriptures I could go through there. Um, I'm going to hold this booklet up because I've got a lot more proof that the kingdom of God is not here yet. 
uh, in this book, The Gospel of the Kingdom of God. This booklet's available free at the ccog.org website. And in addition to going to the literature tab to find it, if you don't do that, if you just go on the ccog.org website and continue down, you'll find about 100 languages this book is written in. I think it's over 100. You can click on the language if you prefer a different language or you know somebody prefers a different language. Anyway, Matthew 25, starting verse 31, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him will separate them from one another. The shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Set the sheep on His right hand and the goats on the left. He'll say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It means we're not there yet. The kingdom of God is not here. Uh, yet we've been, uh, uh, we've not yet been uh, born into it. We've been begotten to be in it, but we're not yet born into it. And again, we've got a booklet on this. Now, I want to go into another way to prove this to others. Because what happens a lot of times, people will read, a translation and they think it says what they want it to say and they're convinced that they're right or they'll find some writer who's written in the 19th, 20th, 21st century who believes something means something. Well the problem is that a lot of these people are doing their own interpretation and how do you know that our interpretation is right and we're not just doing our own? Well if you think about it or realize the fact that the New Testament was written in Koine Greek uh, we have a, it's, it's a draft, but the book is up on, online at ccg.org, Who Gave the World the Bible? And we go into why you can prove that the New Testament was written in Greek. Anyway, the fact is that in the second century, which is the century right after the New Testament was finalized, you have people who were speaking Koine or New Testament Greek, and they understood it, uh, particularly in the Greek-speaking areas. And one of the people... Uh, who is a Church of God Christian and is considered to be a saint by the Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholics, and Protestant theologians, is Theophilus of uh, Antioch. And I'd like to read something he wrote uh, in his book called uh, To Autolycus, Book 2, Chapter 15. On the fourth day of creation, the day the luminaries were made, but the... Moon wanes monthly, you know, so that you have a full moon, new moon every month, and in a manner dies, being a type of man. Then it is born again, and is crescent, for a pattern of the future resurrection. Okay, Theophilus is writing, what you see happening into the moon is essentially got to do with a future resurrection. So he says you're born again at the resurrection. He wrote this in the second century. Okay, again, the uh, book of Revelation was finished toward the end of the first uh, century, somewhere around uh, 95 uh, A.D. So in the second century, in the 100s A.D., Theophilus writes this. He's considered to be a saint by Catholics, Protestants, the Church of God, uh, it's the Orthodox, etc. And he says, you're born again at the resurrection. And you can read about uh, what happens at the future resurrection. I mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15 and it says, you know, flesh and blood, verse 50, flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit in corruption and will all be changed. And then we continue in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about death being swallowed up in a victory. Now, in the 3rd century uh, AD, Hippolytus of Rome, who was one of their greatest 
early theological scholars, according to them, says that we're begotten by the Holy Spirit at baptism. He wrote, and by the way, here's what he wrote. This is the spirit that was given to the apostles in the form of fiery tongues. This is the spirit David sought when he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Of the spirit Gabriel spoke to the virgin, etc., etc., etc. Come then, begotten again, O man, into the adoption of God. For he who comes down in faith through the layer of regeneration renounces the devil and joins himself to Christ who denies the enemy, makes confession that Christ is God, who puts off the bondage, puts on the adoption. He comes up from baptism, brilliant as the sun, flashing forth beams of righteousness, which is indeed the chief thing. He returns as a son of God, a joint heir with Christ. But he's again, it's a begotten son of God. And that's what he taught. Even in the 4th century, it was understood that Christians are first begotten and that Jesus was the firstborn of the dead, and that we become born again later. I'm debating how much of this I want to read, but one reason I'm doing this is to let people know, look, the, the Protestant idea that you're uh, born again uh, uh, in this life is, is not true. Uh, the Roman Catholic idea that you're born again uh, at uh, infant baptism also uh, is, was not the case, and again, does, it contradicts uh, writings of people they consider to be, be saints. The Church of God view that you're begotten by the Holy Spirit now, and we're born again at the resurrection, is what people who knew the language better or were more familiar with it than um, uh, modern scholars are. So that's why you can rely on what we're telling you. We're telling you not only is it in the Bible, but we have supporting writings from others who we're a lot closer to that time frame who agree with what we say that it meant. So here's uh, what um, Athanasius wrote, and he's considered a major saint by the Greco-Roman Protestants. For God not only created them to be men, but he called them to be sons as having begotten them. For the term begat is here as elsewhere, is expressive of son. Okay, so he's very clear. He's talking about being begotten. He says by the prophets, I've begotten sons to exalt them. But in generally, when Scripture wishes to signify a son, it, doesn't, it does so, not by the term created, but that of begot. And John seems to say, He gave them power to become children of God, even them who believe His name, which were begotten, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. And here, too, cautious distinction is well kept up. For first he says, become, because... We're not called sons by nature, but by adoption. Then he says, we were begotten, because they too had received, at any rate, the name of the Son. Now, he, Jesus, became man, as the Apostle said, that he's beginning the firstborn from the dead, that he may have preeminence. He said, firstborn from the dead, not that he died before us, for we had died first, but because, having undergone death for us and abolished it, he was the first to rise as a man for our sake, Rising his own, raising his own body. Henceforth, he having risen, we too from him, because of him, in due course, from the dead. He's called the firstborn of many brethren, because of the relationship of the flesh, and the firstborn of the dead, because of the resurrection of the dead, is from him and after him. He is the firstborn among the brethren, who rose from the dead, the firstfruits of those that slept. So since it became in him all things to have preeminence. So, again, he's saying... 
We are begotten now. We're, uh, we'll be born again in the resurrection. Now I found something from uh, a publication of a group called Church of Christ, which was later called Church of God Adventist, in the uh, uh, 19th uh, century. Now, um, I'm not going to read all of this, but basically what it says is, some take the position that the new birth is uh, water baptism, uh, and it's the birth of the flesh. But uh, then he, he says, uh, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And there's just a whole lot of stuff about there. And he says that the New Testament is in harmony with the Old Testament about this. We have an article at the uh, cogwriter.com uh, website uh, on this. And uh, you, you can read it. Uh, here's a couple other things I'm going to mention also. This is from uh, the Hope of Israel uh, the one I just read is from 1863. I'm going to read something from 1865. The doctrine of being born again. Uh, Christ is born a second time. When are Christians begotten again? 1 Peter 1.3. Christians are then begotten when they receive the gospel, the word of truth, when they receive the hope of the resurrection, Christ from the dead. When will Christians be born again? John 3.6. All Christians have been born in the flesh. They'll be born again when they're born in the spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.44-49. When they become children of God by being children of the resurrection. And that is what we teach. So don't think what, we've come up, what we're teaching in the Continuing Church of God is something that just came up in the 21st century or what the old Worldwide Radio God, Church of God taught. Because it's also, again, we can go to the 19th century, and again, I read from the 2nd century, the 3rd century, and the 4th century. These were original Christian beliefs. Uh, even today, you know, if, if the Eastern Orthodox are kind of interesting, you want to read uh, something they say. said, the standard evangelical Protestant doctrine of, of born-again is a false bill of goods. The simplistic born-again formula for instant painless salvation is not only a misunderstanding, it's a heresy. It contradicts the teaching of Christ in regard to the narrow, hard, difficult uh, way of salvation. This is from a book called Eastern Orthodox Theology, uh, which I've read. Uh, and other Church of God writers have written about this uh, throughout history. And, you know, the idea... But the concept of being born again in the flesh is more than an issue of semantics. Again, as I said, I was wrong about that. I realized I was wrong about it and changed a long, long time ago. You know, and I didn't know back then that early Christians taught that uh, we were supposed to be, we were begotten now and we were born again to resurrection. And uh, the logical conclusion of the born again now argument is, is to prevent actually people from having any heritage of the kingdom of God. I think it's a bad argument. I think it hurts people. And its acceptance uh, has led people to accept various pagan practices and ideas, and they should not have done it. Now, officially, and I'm reading this from our statement of beliefs, here's what the continuing church of God teaches. Upon receiving the Holy Spirit, Christians are begotten by God 1 Peter 1.3, 1 John 5.1. And then after a period of spiritual growth gestation, 2 Peter 3.18, Christians will literally be born again at the resurrection, John 3.5-7, as Christ was, uh, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, Romans 1.4-5. through 5. 
Maybe I should add First Corinthians in there. If I don't have it in there, we should probably have that as well, because that would be consistent. Anyway, understanding that we're begotten now helps picture our growth and development so we can truly be born again at the resurrection into the kingdom of God. And the idea that we're begotten now, think about a human being. Uh, when a woman becomes pregnant, the baby's in there, and the baby has to develop. And the ba baby has to develop to the point where the baby can live, not inside the protected uh, womb of, of, the of the baby's mother, but outside. Right now, for us, it's sort of, a, sort of the opposite. We're begotten by God's Holy Spirit now, and we're going through tests and trials in this life to build character, to learn how to be able to give a love in a unique way to make eternity better for ourselves and others. I mentioned that, and that we go into more depth in uh, our book, uh, The Mystery of God's Plan. But as far as being begotten uh, now, we go through life to be ready for the spiritual life. We will be resurrected. Whereas uh, we have perfect or beautiful analogy between the human pro begettal process. A conception is like what happens when uh, we're conceived by the Holy Spirit and begotten by the Holy Spirit. And then growing inside the mother to be ready to, uh, to come out to a new life. The Bible talks about the church being a type of mother uh, trying to teach. But you go through tests and trials on your own uh, without uh, uh, any church to be ready to be born into another life as well. So the, the analogy is there. It holds. It's true. Uh, we're not born again now. Uh, we'll be born again at the resurrection. And again, that was the position of early Christians. Okay, going back to uh, more questions. And I lost my place, so you have to give me a moment to get back to where I was. And there I was. Okay. See how many more uh, we'll cover here. A question about John 10.30. So we're going to go to John 10.30. Going from the, uh, again, the New King James Version. I didn't write all these scriptures out since I'm using the uh, binder as a guide. I and my Father are one. That's what, what it says there. Now, some people have interpreted this to mean that they're completely the same. Um, but let's go to uh, John 14, 28. You know, one of the ideas of the Greco-Roman Trinity is uh, God is three co-equal people. And that's simply not the case if you believe the Bible. And early Christians didn't believe that either, by the way. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, verse 28, you have heard me say to you that I'm going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. They are not co-equal, they are different. Now, uh, the old uh, World Wide Church God taught that uh, uh, there's one Godhead or one God family. Now, the article or the letter they have here doesn't have the scripture that I think they should have, which is Ephesians 5. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. There we go. 
Ephesians 5, I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 14. And I'm slightly confused only because when I looked at looked this up in a Bible I have at my office, it's on the other side of the page. So I was looking the other side and it's like it's not there. Therefore it says, Away for you sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See that you walk uh, circumspectly, redeeming the uh, time days are, are evil. Uh, actually, that's not the uh, verse I was looking for. Uh, it says in Ephesians, uh, the whole family of, uh, of God is uh, named after him. Uh, and I wanted to say that because uh, God, is a, God is a family. So I'm sorry I didn't find that. And uh, I don't want to spend the whole time looking for that right now. I broke the wrong scripture down. So... Uh, Bible, in terms of the family relationship, you know, it says in John 1.12, as many have received him, he gave them the power to become sons of God. We're begotten by God to become part of his family, and there's a family of God. We have detailed uh, articles about uh, the Godhead, but we also cover them in uh, some of the books that I mentioned. Uh, we, For example, this particular book on the police original Catholic Church, as well as uh, the one hope of salvation, how Continuing Church of God from Protestantism. As a matter of fact, I go into some arguments uh, Protestants have uh, raised on that point. All right, let's go back and see if I can cover one or two more topics uh, before we get through here. Okay, this is one of uh, people are wondering about. Uh, uh, 1 John 1, 5, 16 to 17, so we're going to go there. I, it's written down there, but I'll read it from the New King James. So let's go to 1 John 1, 5. I'm trying, here we go. 1 John 1, 5, uh, 16 to 17. This question. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin that does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him light. For those who commit sin not leading to death, there is a sin leading to death, and I do not say you should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Uh, the, the sin not leading to death is something you can repent of. Uh, the only thing that's not forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is intentionally being unrepentant and not wanting to go uh, uh, live to God's way. All right, the next thing I wanted to cover, uh, and I have a different answer than uh, the Tekatz Worldwide Church of God. This has to do with the Star of David. Uh, they were convinced it was not a, a, a pagan symbol. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Various symbols are used uh, nationally. Uh, for example, uh, the uh, Magan David, also known as the Star of David, because it, it literally means Shield of David, is actually on the Israeli flag. But you can find flags of different nations that have different types of crosses or various other uh, non-biblical uh, symbols on them or symbols that pagans used to use, if you want to go that direction. Uh, the Star of David, though, tends to be worn a lot by Messianic Jews uh, they seem to want to uh, emphasize 
their difference of people uh, in, in a physical way quite a bit. Uh, it's, in case you're not familiar with it, it's a series of, uh, it's got two equilateral triangles that go over it. In the uh, 17th century, it became popular to put the uh, um, and David on the outside of a synagogue to, uh, and to basically identify Jewish houses of worship the same way uh, Protestants and some Catholics uh, use uh, crosses. And it was basically considered to be also uh, originally a type of good luck charm. And Jews will admit that the, that's what this was, is a good luck charm. And let me read a few things uh, about this. It's a six-pointed star. It's one of the most powerful, beneficial of the ancient Atlantean spiritual symbols, which was utilized by the Egyptians. It's composed of an upward triangle taking earth to heaven and a downward triangle bringing heaven to earth. And I've seen uh, Trinitarians use this to try to argue that the Trinity is fine. The key of the Egyptians is to connect the six-pointed star bringing earth to heaven heaven to earth. Anyway, the reality is the star does not have biblical origins. The Bible warns against idolatry and paganism, as well as various sins from Egypt. Uh, but a lot of uh, Messianic Jews, for their own traditions, they'd like to, uh, to use that. They also like to use uh, crosses. Uh, you may be surprised to find out crosses were not originally used by uh, Christians. And uh, we've, we've got uh, messages on that uh, we can go over, but I'm not going to cover the origin of the cross today. It's not one of the subjects we're going to do. Here's another thing. This has to do with uh, 1 Kings 17, verse 21. So it's recorded that Elijah prayed to God to, quote, let the child's soul come into him again. Now, a lot of people misunderstand what the word soul means. And in Hebrew, there's a word called nephesh, nephesh. And according to Bagister's Analytical Hebrew and Chaldee Lexicon, the word nephesh uh, means breath, or anything that breathes. So we're not talking about some immortal soul that uh, this, this child died and uh, was up in heaven or paradise or wherever you may have thought it went, and he brought the soul back uh, in. Uh, he didn't do that. Uh, humans are uh, living, breathing creatures. Uh, we're needy fish, and so, by the way, the same term is used for animals. Uh, anyway, we breathe through uh, our nostrils. Uh, uh, God uh, was asked by Elijah to restore this breath of life to the child who died, and that happened. Okay. Here's, someone has a question concerning uh, 2 Kings uh, 16.2 and uh, 18.2. And when you look at it, it looks like we have these different kings who uh, went for different years. Uh, one is showing uh, 16 years, the other seems to uh, point to 20 years. Is this a biblical contradiction? Well, what happened was sometimes when kings were getting older, they would also appoint their heir, their, which would be their son, uh, to be a king. So if they were old, they would, they would do so, and they would, but they'd still be around. Uh, they would be able to sort of basically be the senior king, you know, override their son. So that's kind of what's going on here. Now, one of the reasons I'm 
uh, did want to mention this for a moment or so, is people have wondered, you know, how many years ago the uh, planet was created, uh, well, how many years ago Adam and Eve left Garden of Eden. We'll skip the planet part, but we'll go from when Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden. And one of the ways we do this is see how old people were when they, when they had uh, children. And also, we look at the length of the reigns of the kings. But the problem is, because some of these kings had uh, co-regencies, is what it's called, you can't always tell. So, in the continuing Church of God, while I have looked at these scriptures and added up ages of kings' reigns and ages of people having children and all that kind of stuff to try to figure out when the 6,000 years would end, we also believe, like early Christians did, that God had a plan to have humanity on the planet for 6,000 years after Adam and Eve sinned uh, before he would send Jesus to establish the kingdom of God. And since the apostles said that Jesus was preaching during the last days and Jesus was resurrected uh, no later than 31 AD, uh, if the last days are symbolic of 1,000-year days, six 1,000-year days, the Bible says in Peter and in Psalms that the day of the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. And it was attributed to the prophet Elijah or the school of Elijah that God gave humanity 6,000 years. If that is correct, uh, the last days would be up probably no later than uh, uh, 2031. I mention this because there are, there are people such as the Protestant Archbishop uh, uh, Usher, uh, Asher, who, uh, it was Usher, excuse me, Usher, who had this all ending by 1996. But again, you've got, this is why one of the reasons the co-regencies of the kings is important to look at. But it's also important to realize that Scripture cannot be broken, as Jesus said in John 17, 17, which, which means the Bible does not contradict itself. So if we see two different lengths of kings range from the same king, this is one of the reasons what uh, that would be there. Uh, this next one I've sort of alluded to already. Question is, do you have literature in languages other than English? And the reality is yes. Uh, we have uh, magazines in different languages, uh, Spanish, uh, French, uh, uh, Kiswahili, uh, Dulua. We've had them translated into German and some other languages as well. I also had held up our Gospel of the Kingdom of God booklet and mentioned that you can go to ccog.org. And one of the reasons to mention that is that at that ccog.org page, if you go down the page, you'll see uh, over 100 languages. It might be 105, 110 languages. I don't remember. I should remember. And you've got the language sort of written in English. Then you have the language, generally speaking, written in the language of that language. Sometimes they use different characters. So we do have literature in other languages. If you are skilled in languages we don't have much literature in, uh, and would like to volunteer to assist us and improve the, the, what we have in various languages, uh, just send me an email at cogwriter at aol.com. I've got somebody who recently has agreed to do that, so we're hoping to get more literature in uh, a couple of languages. I don't want to mention them in case we don't get them, but it was a couple more that uh, I'm hopeful we're going to get uh, better translated literature in. Okay, now something I did want to cover was about leaven. And uh, what about getting rid of leaven regarding the days of unleavened bread? So they were, the Church of God was asked about non-food products that contain leaven. So here's what this says. 
As you know, during the days of leavened bread, we are to have no leaven or leavened products in our home. It says that in Exodus 12:15 uh, and 13:7. Uh, and let me also say, for some who think, oh, maybe this stuff was done away, uh, early Christians did keep the days of leavened bread. We have writings from them or about them uh, talking about the days of leavened bread from uh, the, the second century. Anyway, so the question is, is uh, well, anyway, it says, we're not to have 11 or 11 products in our home. This includes any agent that produces fermentation, causes dough to rise, yeast, baking soda, baking powder, and the like. Items such as bread, cake, crackers, cookies, certain cereals and pies, which contain leavening, must be put out. Doing so is symbolic of putting both the visible and, and hidden sins out of our life. Now, it's true that there's a lot of leaven in products other than baked goods. Among these are beer, wine, antacids, and some medicines, bath powers, toothpaste, and dog foods. Even fire extinguishers contain foams of leavening agents. But all these need not be discarded. For any for use of leaven other than causing dough to rise is a matter of personal conscience between the individual Christian and God whether the product should be thrown out. And so in our case, I don't I'm not comfortable having toothpaste with baking soda in it because the baking soda is still a leavening agent. Uh, we're not saying if you think you it's okay that you have to throw that out. Uh, but I uh, just thought I'd mention that particular one that I, I would have an issue with. Um, and uh, if I had a dog that I found stuff with, I, I would think that wouldn't be appropriate either because that's sort of leavened leaven bread as well. Okay, but anyway, that was their position. Now, I've been asked in the past about other things. What, what is or is not leaven to be put out by the, for the days of leavened bread? So I'm going to go through a list of uh, leavening agents. And these are on an article at the cogwriter.com website in case I go through them too quickly. And this because there's quite a few I'm going to go through here. Anyway, leavening agents include active dried yeast, ammonium carbonate, also known as hartshorn, ammonium bicarbonate, baker's ammonia, baker's yeast, baking powder, baking soda, bicarbonate of soda, dipotassium carbonate, potassium bicarbonate, potassium carbonate, sodium bicarbonate, also known as S-A-L-E-R-A-T-U-S, so I won't mispronounce that one. Sodium phosphate, sourdough starter's yeast, monocalcium phosphate. That being said, the following are not leavening agents. Autolyzed yeast, brewer's yeast, cornstarch, egg whites, polysorbate 20, potassium bitartrate, also known as cream of tartar, sorbitin monosterate, tartrate power, Terulia yeast, and that's in a lot of stuff I've noticed, and yeast extract. So anyway, I've, I've tried to cover a variety of topics in here, and so yes, it seems like I've bounced around a bit because I'm going through some things. But again, this is an opportunity to cover topics we don't normally copy, cover, such as Jephthah, and again, being begotten and born again. And as we're near the season of unleavened bread, I thought it was a good time to also go through some leavening agents and non-leavening agents and things you should get rid of or or that you can actually keep during the day of the leavened bread. So I hope this has, has helped you. hope this has answered some questions that you've had because these are questions others have had. This is uh, Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.